0: Oh my goodness, I tell you what, a, what an awesome privilege it is for me uh, to be here with, uh, with you. How many of you got to come to the conference yesterday? That was awesome. It was, it, that, was, that was awesome. And, and um, I'm going to kind of pick back up with a little bit of what I was talking about yesterday. Um, I want to talk to you some this morning about seeing yourself the way that God sees you. Uh, God sees you as the apple of his eye. Uh, you the pearl of great price, and God uh, loves you, and, and I often say this, I said it at the conference yesterday, uh, at least there's one thing I cannot mess up, and that's how God feels. I, amen? I can make a decision, it could change how everyone in my life feels about me, but I can never make a decision that changes how God feels about me. You know, and when we see ourselves the way that God really sees us, it changes everything in our life. You know, and one of the things that changes, think about the young couple back here, you guys know you're getting married, right? And when when are you getting married? Next week. Next week. Congratulations again. We we're happy for you. And my wife and I just celebrated our thirty seventh anniversary and it just gets better and better and better and but one of the things mm-hmm. that seeing yourself the way that God sees you changes more than anything else is your relationships. You know, um, you know, I say this quite often. You can tell more about what someone believes about God in the relationships than you can in anything else in life. And so how you see yourself is based on how that you think God sees you. And so this morning I'm going to talk to you about seeing yourself as God sees you. You know, all of us, uh, you know, when, when you don't see yourself the way that God sees you, you fall into some traps in a lot of different areas of your life. And one of the biggest traps that we fall into is trying to earn something from God rather than just enjoying and receiving the, the benefits of righteousness that He's given us. And, man, I'm telling you, the Bible is true. That's full of the promises of God. And as 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, "...and all the promises of God have been declared yes and amen in Jesus." So any, any promise of God that we see in the Bible, the answer to us has already been declared yes. And, and, you know, and, and it's not because of what we've done, but because of who he is that enables us to receive and, and have the benefits of everything that Jesus went to the cross. And I'd I've, I've never heard that song, Not Guilty. Oh, my, my. Man, aren't you glad you stand before God, Not Guilty? Amen. You know, there, there's one translation that says that we stand before him with not even one thing left that he can chide us for. I tell you, stand before him blameless and holy and totally accepted. You know, God designed us to get our worth and our value out of our relationship with him and not our relationship with other people or things and, and, and so forth. You know, in America, there's a saying that we use there that says this, that uh, that, that in America, we're busy trying to buy things we cannot afford to impress people that we do not, do not even like. <laughs> and when you don't get your value and your worth out of the price that God paid for you, and I ended up on this at the conference yesterday, when we don't realize the great value that God placed on us, we will start looking outside trying to get our value from something other than who God says we are. And if we try to get it from something other than who God says we are, we'll always end up in a, a very difficult place in life. It'll mess our lives up. We'll, we'll run into dead-end streets, and we'll live our life in emptiness and, and have a lot of different uh, difficulties that come up uh, from that. You know, the typical response from not getting our value out of our relationship with God, one, is to try harder, work harder. It's like, you know, if I just try harder, work harder, pray harder, believe harder, you know, do all the right things, then somehow uh, God's going to accept me more. You know what? You can't get any more accepted than you already are. You're accepted because of what God has done for us in Jesus, not because our performance. Our performance is Ephesians 2.10 says, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus Unto good works, not by good works, but at a natural response of who we are, they will be some good things that come forth out of our life. We do not perform and do good things to become. We we have good things that flow from our life because we are the nature of God now. You know, and to to live a life that opposes the nature of God does not sit right with you. You know, it does not set right with me. It doesn't feel right to violate the nature that God has, uh, has born in us, you know, through the Holy Spirit. And, and, and another thing, we talked about this yesterday, when we are not getting our value from our relationship with God and, and, and seeing God or, let, or seeing ourselves the way that God sees us, we try to get the approval of other people. And if we try to get the approval of other people again, it will end in a dead end street and it'll always end up in emptiness. And, and, and one of the things that I've discovered out of my own life is that, that when I, um, when I first started walking with God, you know, I didn't know, I mean, I got saved 1980, uh, August 10th of 1980, a little Methodist church and, And I tell you what, I went to church that night because I had everything I thought would make me happy, but yet I was not happy. I had a new home, new automobiles, new stuff, you know. And I realized, you know what, I'm so empty. I need God. I need something. I've got to have something. And so I, I received the Lord into my life. And one of the things that my pastor taught me in this Methodist church was that Jesus loved me. And I tell you, that was a revelation to me. And then shortly thereafter, meaning a year or two into the process of me walking with God, I started getting around people. I don't know what you would call those people, but you know, kind of in the circles that you and I, a lot of us came out of a charismatic type circle and don't mean to sound critical when I say this, but then they started telling me all the things I had to do to get what I thought I already had. You might want to know what I'm talking about. It's like if you will do this, then God will bless you. If you will do this, God will love you. And it kind of opposed what my pastor had told me because he had told me that Jesus loved me. And I tell you, that is such a simple but yet powerful revelation when you realize that the God of the universe loved you so much and me so much that he was willing to give up the very best that he had in order that I could have and enjoy this thing called life. Thank God for heaven, but I'm living on earth right now, and I want to have a life right now, don't you? You know, I want it to influence my life as I live. Thank God for heaven, a lot better than hell, but I'm looking for a life on earth, amen? Thank God for this life. And so I started then, here's what began to happen. I, I then started feeling very insecure in my relationship with God. I felt like I did not measure up. I didn't, I thought at first when I started walking with God, I thought I didn't have to measure up. Then I got around people that told me that if I would do all the right things, then God would bless me. Anybody ever heard of that one? or if I would pray enough, or if I would do enough, serve enough, and all those things are great and wonderful in their place, but it's not a, a, a thing that we exchange to God for stuff. And, I, uh, uh, you know, Bertie said this yesterday in a maybe just a slightly different way. You know, and so I begin to, what I'm about to say, I, and I begin to hear teachings like you exchange faith for stuff. Like if you have enough faith, you can take that faith and you can exchange it to God for whatever it is that uh, that I need. You know what I'm talking about. So if I get enough faith for a car, then I could take that faith out of my account and give it to God, and I'll get the car. And you had to have all the right confessions. You know what I'm talking about. And and you know and I believe in confession, but confession now is is confession of who I am and what God has done, and it's a persuasion of my heart. I'm not trying to persuade God of anything anymore. I'm trying to persuade myself of the realities. So do you, have you ever seen this? The guy who spins the plates on the sticks, you know. You ever saw that? He'll spin the plate and he'll get this plate spinning and he'll get this plate spinning and then he'll run back over here because this one's about to fall off. Have you ever saw that? And so he gets these, all these plates spinning and that's kind of the way that I viewed God and my confession. I had my healing confessions. I had my prosperity confessions. I had my relationship confessions and I, this is starts, you know, kind of, you know, I have to go back and keep these things spinning all the time. And I kept myself busy trying to keep all the confession plates spinning at the same time. Because if I, could, I thought if I could keep all of these in harmony, then I would have the life of God. When then suddenly one day I realized none of this stuff works. You ever come to that place? I burned myself out spinning confession plates. You know, because I'd get this one working pretty good, and then go to this one, and go to this and then oh, well, this is falling off, and, and, and then one day, one day I realized, you know what? I've got to, I've, I have got to go back and reconvince my heart of who God is. I've got to go back and reconvince my heart of who God is, because if I can get convinced of who God is, I'll understand who I am. But I will never understand who I am unless I understand who God is. And so one of the things that I've realized through the years, now that I am becoming convinced, you know, and and it's a a continual process of us having an awareness of the love of God. I tell you, you ever ever thought this? Have you ever thought you've arrived in an area of your life to realize you haven't even left the house yet? I mean, about the time I think I've discovered the love of God... I see a dimension of the love of God I've never seen. It's kind of like peeling an onion. You know, you take out one layer after another layer, after another layer, and you never exhaust the love of God and the depth of the love of God. You know, one of the main reasons that people leave our church back in the States, they say, I get tired of hearing about this love message. I've got this love of God message down. Now I've got to go get something deep. And the Bible says you can't measure this love. And, and, and they say, you know, I get tired of hearing about the love of God. Well, to me, that's proof they have no clue about the love of God. My wife and I have been married 37 years. And so when I'm, you know, thank God now, you know, when you're out of the country, you can, you can still talk to your, unless you're just way out in the middle of where like Bertie goes somewhere, you know. Uh, but, 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 you know, where I'm at now, I can talk to my wife two or three times a day if I want to. And you know what? I talked to her last night and guess what? Before I hung up, you know what she told me? She said, I love you. Now, what if I told her now, we've been married 37 years. We've known each other since grade 3 in school. We were middle school sweethearts, grade 7, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, got married right out of high school. So we've known each other all of our life. And so what if last night when she said, I love you, I, looked at, I, I just said to her, well, yeah, I know. I already know that. <laughs> Tell me something deep. Yeah, that would not be good. I should extend my stay. And so a lot of times people say that. I, I, I'm going to Now, I've got this love message down. Of course, you can tell by the way that they treat other people. They, they have no concept of the love of God because they don't love people. Listen, if what you believe about God does not make you more tolerant and more in love with people, you do not believe the right thing about God yet. Because the more you understand who God is, the more you are patient and tolerant with people that have problems, difficulties, and even those people that get under your skin. That's good preaching right there now. Now listen to what I'm saying. The revelation of who God is changes how I feel about myself. And how I feel about myself changes how I feel about you. And so... There's some problems, however, that when I, I became very insecure, and, I, and insecure just simply meaning that I didn't feel good about myself, I felt like I didn't measure up, and, and, and there's some problems that come with that. And one of the problems that, that you, ha- you have in your life when you do not feel good about yourself... Now listen closely to this. This is so simple. We attract... If I'm insecure, do not feel good about myself... I feel like I do not measure up. I'm not good enough. I will attract to me people that are the way I am. So if I feel insecure, I attract insecure people. I remember when I first started pastoring, I was a denominational pastor, Methodist pastor, and then I I took over a, a charismatic type church, Word of Faith church, whatever kind of church it was, uh, it was a new church that a fellow started, and and uh, anyway, so I took that church over. And so I, I one day I was driving to, to pick my daughter up at school, and I was listening to a, a, a cassette tape by, uh, by Doctor Kenneth Hagan and and you know, of course, he was live back then. And and I was driving along, and I had a lot of problems in my church. I know that in South Africa, you know, you don't have problems in churches, okay? But I did have a lot of problems, and so I was driving along, you know, and. And Brother Hagin said, if you have taken over, he said, if you've taken over a church, the first three years that you are pastoring that church, the problems you're, most of the problems that you're dealing with, the dominating prominent problems, are the problems the last person left you. Then after that, if you've got a dominating problem in your church, they're getting it from you. And it made me angry because I was surrounded by insecure people. Insecure Christian people are dangerous. It made me so angry I pulled over on the side of the road and pulled the cassette out of the tape deck, rolled my window down and started to throw the tape out the window. And then all this because I didn't want it to be me. I wanted it to be everybody else. You know, John Maxwell. I heard him say this one time, and it's one of those statements that kind of rocks you if if you think about it. He said, "We we do not attract into our life who we want; we attract into our life who we are." I've got a friend. He's he's about you know fifty or so, and he's never been married, and and he's a real close friend, and I love this guy very much. And so he was telling me one day. I said, "You know, I called him my name." I said, "Well." What kind of woman are you looking for? And of course, he described this certain age, certain kind of hair, certain face, certain body, not in a vulgar way, but a certain shape body and, and certain beliefs and a certain type of personality. And, and this lady could cook a certain way and, and do all these things. And, and I said, well, you've got, he said, what do you think? I said, you've got two problems. First of all, that person does not exist. I said, the second of all, if she did, you couldn't attract her. He said, why? I said, go look in the mirror. You're not that person. You don't look like the person you're wanting to attract. You don't have the personality of the person you're wanting to attract. And so when you have insecurities, you surround yourself with a lot of insecure people, a lot of needy people and that becomes very dangerous in your life. You know, and I'm telling you that is that such a such a powerful truth. Here's another problem that insecurities create. They it, you'll be used and manipulated. Or you will manipulate other people. Your worth and your value will be based on external things rather than what God has done for you. It's like I said earlier, you know, We're busy, the average American is busy buying things they cannot afford with money, buying things with money they do not have to impress neighbors they do not even like. And so value or worth becomes about external things. You will have a clear vision for your life. You don't know where you want to go in life when you do not feel good about yourself. You know, you'll spend your life trying to live up to unrealistic expectations with people and, and in your relationship with God. And so it just ends in a vicious cycle that that never you never overcome. So what is the solution to all of this? And, and how, do, how, do we, how do we overcome this? And, and, of course, that is seeing God the way God really is. You know, we've really... And thank God you're in a church that teaches you the truth. You ought to thank God you're in a church that teaches you truth. If you've ever been in a church where... I, now, I wouldn't say it to you because I know it wouldn't happen here anyway... Uh, uh, but you know, I, I, I say, say, I make statements in my church I'd never make in somebody else's. So I make it, I make this to my people. I'm not making it to you. So people get tired of hearing me talk about the love of God, grace of God, and all those things. And I say, you know, if you want to, let me just. If you get tired of hearing this, I can tell you a few churches in town you can go to next week, and and just get the hell beat out of you. So that when when you you come back and you realize, you know what, I am hearing a pretty good thing here. You know, if you want to go hear how rotten you are, I can tell you. And I said, so go, you know, just go to some, if you get to taking this for granted, just go to some dead church next week. Oh, well, that's good. Just go to some church that will beat your brains out and tell you how rotten you are. And and then, you know, come, then come back. We'll love you and, you know, nurture you and put the band-aids back on you and, and, and help you get healed up of what you, you got exposed to. Because a lot of times people start taking this thing for granted. But, you know, a lot of the body of Christ and a lot of us were that way. You know, that, that, that we have been given some misinformation about God. That God is not who we heard he was. And I know that you're taught the truth in this church. Again, you should thank God for a church like this. Matter of fact, you're going to get a bigger space pretty quick here. I know it's your first day here, but I can see it coming real quick. Um, but you ought to thank God for a place like this, you know, you ought to thank God for a place like this, where it's okay to come and have problems, mm-hmm. yes. where you don't have to put on a face. You ever, I tell our people, I just wish I could send the door frames of our church home with them. Cause it's amazing. You know, I, I used to, I'd kind of watch people coming in from the parking lot and you could see them getting out of the car. You know, husband, and wife be fighting all the way to church. You can tell they're getting out, you know, and getting kids ready and pinching kids, come on, and they're fussing and fighting all the way. And man, as soon as they walk through those doors, hallelujah. <laughs> I mean, you saw them coming through the parking lot, fighting like, like wild, you know. How you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored of the Lord. Well, but I just saw you. <laughs> You're fighting coming across the parking lot. How's your week? Oh, it's been a blessed week. I'm blessed going in, blessed going out. I'm the head not to tail. I'm a winner. I'm not a loser. And then they leave church. You see them going back to the car and they pick right back up where they left off before they came inside. And, you know, I, I, look, at, you know, I look at this, you know, and it's so easy to take. It's so easy to take this message for granted. You know, I, sometimes I forget That everyone does not believe this. I mean, I do. Because I'm around it so much. And most churches that I would go to have at least had some exposure to grace. And so it's so easy to think that everybody believes that God is a good God. But not everybody believes that. Most of your friends do not believe that. Most of your friends believe in an angry God. a, a, A Godfather God. That if you don't pay the Godfather off, you know, if you'll, pay, if you'll pay him off, he'll protect you. And if you don't pay him off, you know, with your good service, should you do good service? Sure, but you're not paying the Godfather off. With your giving, should you give? Absolutely, it's the nature of God to give. But you're not paying the Godfather off. There's a saying in America that if you if you God's gonna get his money one way or the other. (laughs) And if you don't give, that your washing machine may break down. God's gonna get his money. So the Maytag man becomes God. He the repairman becomes God because God's gonna get his money one way or the other. You know, the Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 8, and it talks about it in many places, but it talks about how that if, that if he who gave up his son for us, if he freely gave him up, will he not also with him freely give us everything else? You ever look that word freely up? It's, it's from the word that we get gratuity. He says, will he not also with him without gratuity? give you everything else. You know, you go to a restaurant and the gratuity's on there, you know. You ever go to the restaurant, you know, in the States, a lot of times you go to the restaurant and somebody will say, well, uh, you know, I'll pay pay the the tab, I'll pay the bill. And another person says, well, I'll get the gratuity, I'll get the tip. And you see, a lot of times we take our good works and make that a gratuity to God. You know the word gratuity you know, tip, and you know, we use the word tip more than gratuity. Y'all use the word tip, T-I-P, to, uh, to ensure promptness. And so in order to ensure that God's going to be prompt, we tip him. Like I know that I can't save myself, but in order to get God to prosper me, or in order to get God to heal me, I'll give him a tip. I mean, you you go into a restaurant in the States, if you go in there much, and and you give good tips, let me tell you something, that server wants you every time. And I'll tell you, they will bend over backwards to do whatever they can do, because they know you're a good tipper. And see, a lot of times, that's kind of the way we do God. We know that we can't save ourselves, but yet now that we're saved, we've got to ensure that God will come through with the rest of it. So we'll use maybe our good performance. Should we have good performance? Absolutely. But not to ensure or tip or give God a gratuity to get him to do something for us. He's not, a God. He's not the Godfather. He's your Father God. And, and God, our God is, is on our side. And, and there's nothing we can do to mess that up. There's nothing we can do to cause God to, to turn his back on us or or to take back a promise that he's given us. You know, this blows my mind. To think about I can never stand before my life and, and, and before God with a need and look at a promise and be disqualified from that promise. Nothing can disqualify me from the promise. Why? Because Jesus qualified me for the promise. Right, isn't that good news? I mean, as much as I know that, as much as I preach that, as much as I've ministered that for many, many, many years, it still, I can't wrap my mind around that. But I know that in my heart and I believe that in my heart that there's nothing I can do to disqualify me from the promises and the provisions of God. God will never look at me and say, now you do not qualify, Alan, because of whatever that, that I have done. And you see, what you believe about God influences everything in your life. It influences how you see yourself. And, and, and when most people think about God and we say, all right, let's think about how God thinks about us. For most people, maybe not you, but for most people, that's not a pleasurable thought. When they think about how God thinks about them, A.W. Tozer said this. It's such a powerful statement. A.W. Tozer, a minister from years ago, he said the most influential and powerful thing in your life is what you think about when you think about God. You know, when you think about God, what is the image that you have? You know, is it an image of a loving father or is it the Godfather? Is it a mystical God? Is it, you know, people say, well, you never know what God will do. Well, you will if you read your Bible. It's real easy to know what God will do if you just read your Bible. God will do what he says in the Bible. And so, you know, when I think about this, about how God thinks and feels about us, in Psalm 139, 17, it says, And I use this at the conference, but it says, God's good thoughts about us outnumber the grains of sand on every seashore. One translation just says, all sand of the earth. Think about that. God's good thoughts about you outnumber all the sand on the planet. Oh. I was I was talking about this, you know, I think like I said this yesterday at the conference, but I've got a I've got a, a big bag of sand in my office. It's um uh, we go in we got a crazy measuring system in America, we've got gallons instead of liters, but it'd be like a probably about like two liters uh, ziploc bag with sand in it. It would be impossible to ca- count the grains of sand in that two liter bag. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. I mean my son in law he did a teaching one time and and you know when you used to do the transparencies, you know? And he took one pinch of sand and put it on a transparency and accounted the number of grains of sand. And just one pinch of sand, it was like 700 and some odd grains of sand. And yet God said in Psalm 139, my good thoughts about you outnumber the grains of sand on earth. So I keep that bag of sand in my office to remind me. I keep it sitting where I can see it, that God's good thoughts about me. Not only outnumber the grains of sand in that bag, but God's good thoughts about me outnumber the grains of sand on planet Earth. The, the Sahara Desert is growing. They say, I forget by how much, every year. You know, it, it's growing every year. There's getting to be more and more sand. Do you know what that means? That means every year, God's good thoughts about me, there are more of them. Amen. <laughs> hey, is that good news? God thinks highly of you. You know, and... How God sees you is, is, is such, a, such, a, such a powerful, powerful truth. And, and, and so seeing yourself as God sees you is a life changer. Listen to this verse of Scripture. In Job, it says this. I'm reading from the Message Bible. Job 42, verses 5 and 6. Now listen to this. Let me just say this first. Most people's version of God was given to them by someone who is confused about God. Well, I've always heard it that way. Well, they used to think the world was flat. <laughs> then somebody sailed out and found out you didn't fall off. Well, I've always heard that God, well, what we've always heard is kind of like, you know, you know, Jesus said, the word of God becomes of no effect because of your tradition. Heard a story one time where a, a young girl goes to her mother and says, Mother, when, when you cook a ham, like a, like a big long ham, why do you cut the ends of the ham off? He said, she says, Well, I don't know. Mother always did. She said, Go ask your grandma. So Go ask grandma. I said, Grandma, I said, when you cook a ham, why do you cut the ends off the ham? She said, Because my pan was too short. <laughs> and so it just got passed down. When you cook a ham, you cut the ends off. Just because the pan was too short. You see, and a lot of things that we have been told about God are just traditions. Yeah. <laughs> and the Word of God becomes of no effect because of our tradition. We esteem our traditions above what God actually says about Himself. And so we ba- we, li- we look at God based on what somebody else said about God. Well, that's what I've always heard about God. You know, I mean, I used to hear... that. Now, somebody said... Boy, I wished I'd have heard you about 25, 30 years ago. No, you don't. Because <laughs> I didn't believe in the God that I believe in now. I believed in that angry God. I mean, I preached like he was going to hell, and I was happy. <laughs> I mean, I was a mean preacher. I'm telling you, I was mean. I mean, I thought that, well, you you know, you, if you'll make people feel bad enough, long enough, they'll repent. No, they won't. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that brings people Amen. to the place of repentance. Amen. Listen to Scripture in Job. Job chapter uh, 42, verses 5 and 6. I'm reading from the Message Bible. It says, now listen to this. He said, now how many of you know Job kind of uh, got in the mess? You remember that? You know, most theologians believe that everything that happened to Job happened in nine months. It wasn't a lifelong thing. So Job, if you read the book of Job, and I've got a whole teaching. Go to our website and you can listen to it, uh, The Real Truth About Job somebody read that one time and he said the real truth about a job <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe maybe they needed it but <laughs> the real truth about job and and you go to our website fam f-a-m Bible fambible.org and we got tons and tons and tons of stuff on there but and and so you go through the book of Job and you and you start out and and understand this that when you read the book of Job it's true that Job said what he said but everything Job said is not true. That's right. What do you mean? Because Job said the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. It's true Job said that, but that's not true. That's right. So you go through the book of Job for about 40 chapters of rambling. Yeah. I mean, he did. He just rambled. And then you get it. I just got to throw this. It's one of the most amazing things in my life in Job. Is when Job's friends came to see him. Remember that? Job's friends came to see him and said, We've come to encourage you. Here he's lost everything. He's got big old sores all over his body, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, and is like, you know, 10 or 12 of his buddies show up and say, We came to encourage you. And so they were so shocked when they saw him, they just sat in a circle around him for about three days before anybody said anything. And then when they came time to encourage him, you know what they said? Tell us the truth, Job. <laughs> Why did this happen to you? <laughs> And then you start reading in chapter 41, along chapter 41, and you start finding out Job starts making some corrections in his life. It, actually in his beliefs. And this is what it says. In Job chapter uh, 42, verses 5 and 6 in the Message Bible, says, I admit I once lived by rumors of you. He said, now I have it all firsthand from my, my own eyes and ears. He said, I'm sorry, forgive me, I'll never do it again. He said, notice what he said, I promise I will never again live on crust of hearsay and crust of rumors about you. We tell our people, you know, in our church, I say, if someone asks you at work, what do you believe about God? Well, in our church, we believe, that's not what I ask you. What do you believe about God? Because it's not the revelation that the body has that changes your life. It's a personal revelation of who God is that changes your life. Listen to this verse of Scripture. You know it is in Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12. It says, The Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing, dividing asunder the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts the intents of the heart. The New Living Translation says it's full of living power And shows us who we really are. And see, a lot of times people read their Bible, they pick their Bible up, and they say, yeah, it shows me who I really am, shows me how bad I am. No, that's not who you really are. Who you are is not what you've done. You know, if I were to say today, okay, we're going to start over here, we're not going to do this, so don't get nervous, but if I said, okay, we're going to start over here, we're going to go around the room, and I want you to tell me who you are without saying what you do. Most people can't do that. Why? Because we've made what we do who we are. Well, I'm a construction worker. No, this is what you do. Well, I'm an evangelist. No, that's just what you do. See, what you do is not who you are. The Word of God exposes who you really are. Who are you? Who you really are is the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Who you are is who God says you are, and who you are is, is not what you've done. Well, I'm a, you know, I'm a divorcee. I'm a drug addict. No, that's, that's just things you've done. That's not who you, the, who, who you are. is who God says you are. This guy came to me one time, and he's still in our church, been in our church for 15 or more years now. and He came to me, had been coming to our church a year or so, and he said, You know, Alan, he said, I, I hear what you say. He said, but, you know, because you say the Bible is not a book that's supposed to condemn us. He said, but when I read my Bible, it condemns me. He said, because he was unfaithful to his wife and he ran around on her and, you know, and did some things he shouldn't have done. And, and now he's a part of, the, part of our worship team and part of our ministry team. And, and he said, and so, but when I read, opened my Bible up before we divorced, said my wife went through and, and highlighted every verse in the Bible that dealt with fornication and adultery. <laughs> He said, so every time I open it up, that's all I see. I said, he said, I don't know what to do. And I said, throw your Bible away. He went, ah! I, got, I can't throw it away. I said, give it to me. I'll throw it away for you. Because God never intended for his word to be something that condemns you. But yet it is a mirror of who you are. Yes. Amen. It's not to expose your weaknesses. It's to expose the strengths and the redemption that God has given us in Jesus. And if the Bible is a book that beats you up, that's the reason you don't like to read it. I mean, if every time you saw someone, if every time you saw me, you knew it was going to pick you apart, you'd avoid me. Unless you're crazy. (laughs) But most people, when they read the Bible, it's not about finding out who they are and finding out who God is. It's all about picking apart their weaknesses. And you never solve a problem, you never solve your issues. By looking at your weaknesses, you solve your issues by looking back and realizing Jesus took this weakness. He took this failure, and he paid the penalty. He paid the price. He set me free from this. I'm not fighting this battle by myself. I've got the grace of God living in me. I've got the love of God living in me. There really is greater one living in me that's more powerful than anything I would face in life. You know, I love this. You know, in Matthew 22... It says, verse 16, the Pharisees sent their disciples and a few of Herod's followers mixed in to ask Jesus. They said, teacher, and I love this. It said, even they recognize this. said, teacher, we know that you have integrity and you teach the way of God accurately. And that's what it says. And you're indifferent to popular opinion. Paul said in his writings... In Galatians 2.20, he says, in the message, he says, My ego, he says, I am crucified with Christ. My ego is no longer central. He said, it's no longer, it's no longer important to me to appear righteous before you, uh, to have your good opinion. He said, matter of fact, I'm no longer driven to impress God. I'm no longer driven to impress God. See, when I see myself the way I am, I'm no longer driven to impress people, but also I'm no longer driven to impress God. I tell you, when God looks at us, man, I'm telling you, it is an awesome thing. And, you know, so Jesus, when he walked the earth, you know, remember what the Bible says when He's baptized? that he this is my beloved son and who I'm well pleased. I love what the message Bible says at Matthew 3, 17. This is my son marked excuse me, chosen and marked by my love, the delight of my life. You know what? You are the delight of his life. You are the delight of his life. And, and, you know, and I, I I think about so many places in the scriptures that we could turn to and, and look at and, and think about how that God delights in us and he doesn't change his mind about us. And but there's a, there's a story, and I'll just kind of quote it to you. A, at the end of chapter 13 of, of the book of John. And remember when Peter was always running his mouth about, everybody else may leave you Jesus, but you can count on me. Remember that? And so Jesus, at the end of John 13, Jesus said, says to him, Peter, before the cock shall crow tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. No, 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 you, Now, Jesus, you, you got me confused with somebody else. Maybe one of these other guys, but not me. No, Peter, before the cock shall crow tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. And then chapter 14 starts. Now, when we read the Bible, we read it in chapters and verses for reference points. So a lot of times there's breaks in chapters, and we think one conversation ended and another starts. So at the end of chapter 13, he says, Before the cock shall crow tomorrow. He's just been boasting about how I'm going to be with you, Jesus. You can count on me. No, Peter, before the cock shall crow tomorrow, you shall deny me three times. Chapter 14 starts this continuing thought. Peter, before, end of chapter 13, Peter, before the cock shall crow tomorrow, you shall deny me three times, but let not your heart be troubled. And you know what he's really saying? Peter, before the sun comes up tomorrow, you're going to change how you feel about me. But don't be troubled about that. Because I'm not changing how I feel about you. Peter, before the sun comes up, you're going to deny me, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house, there are many mansions, dwelling places, Jesus is not running around heaven with a carpenter's belt on building houses. I'm going to prepare a place for you and the family that where I am, there you may be positionally. And then you, you read about, you read on through the Gospels and you see the crucifixion. And remember the ladies go down to the tomb and they find that he's not there. And so they look into the tomb and they see a, a, an angelic being we believe, sitting there and and it says, and go tell the disciples that he's raised from the dead. Notice it was women that went. Thank God for women. The disciples were hiding. Yeah. So the women go, and here, here they are at the tomb, and it's empty. And this angel says, go tell the disciples that he's been raised from the dead just like he said he would. And then they said, and be sure you tell Peter. You know, I'll, I'll read that and it just, it just blows my mind. Here's a guy that cursed and said, I don't know you. but Jesus, And Jesus knew he was going to do this. And he said, don't be troubled because I'm not changing my mind about you. Just because you changed your mind about me. Undoubtedly, Peter was really dealing with a lot of sorrow over his denial because he says, tell the disciples, but be real sure that you tell Peter. In other words, I want Peter to know I haven't changed my mind about him. I, don't, I do not see him any differently than I did. And your failure does not cause you to, God to see you any differently because our failures were placed on Jesus 2,000 years ago. And he overcame our failures and took the punishment for our failures so that we could be in a, in a love relationship with him as our father. I like Romans 12, 6. It says, let's just go ahead and be who we were made to be. Message Bible says, without endlessly and pridefully comparing ourselves to each other and trying to be something we're not. When our oldest granddaughter, she's eight now, and when she was just a baby... And I've told this story a lot of times through the years that one day I was, you know, was our first, she was our first grandchild, and, and I told someone, you know, was talking about it yesterday. I heard, heard one, one guy say that, that um, grandchildren are a reward for not killing your kids. <laughs> you think you, it, it's just wonderful. Grandkids are wonderful. Grandchildren are wonderful. So, little Abby, she's laid on the bed. She's a couple of weeks old, and. She's at our house, and me and her just laying on the bed. And I was just looking at her. I mean, it's better than watching a movie. Just watching her, just laying there to me, and I was looking at her, and I was just like, you know, wow. This is, this is, this is I mean, this is wow. I mean, this is like fantastic. And, and I just watched her and watched her, and, and I thought, you know, I just looked at her, and I thought, you know, there's nothing about her I'll, I would change. She's, to me, she was perfect. And I, as I laid there and looked at her, and I just looking at her, you know, and I thought, one day she's going to be a teenager. And she's going to have attitudes and make choices and do things and, and so forth. And, and how, I, I just began to think in my heart, how will I feel then? And the Lord spoke to my heart, and he said, I never stop looking at you The way that you look at Abby right now, no matter what you do, you know that doesn't cause me to want to get in sin. You know that makes me want to draw near when I think there's that He never stops looking at me, even in a greater dimension than the way that when I looked at Abby or I look at our other our grandsons and. And I look at them, and it's like little Cash is, you know, just six weeks old. And I look at him, and to me, he's like, he's just perfect. I mean, I know you think your grandkids are perfect, but, you know. And God never stops looking at me that way. Folks, if we can really begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us, it will change everything in our life. You know what? So many of the things that we struggle with would just go away. You know, I had a severe anger problem most of my life. Now, when I talk about an anger problem, I'm talking about getting so angry that I'd, I'd almost black out. I'd see little stars and birds and, and almost faint and had to sit down, get weak and just black out and <laughs> knock holes in things and... And, I mean, I had a terrible anger problem. So, and I know where a lot of that stuff, you know, where it entered in, where it came from and all that stuff. And, you know, and I, I mean, I, I understand, you know, some of, the, some of that stuff. That doesn't really matter. What matters is how you overcome it. And, and so I can remember thinking, I'm going to confess my way out of this. I'm not an angry person in Jesus' name. I'm not an angry person in Jesus' name. And so I'd, I'd make, I, I would make a promise, I'm not going to get angry. You ever done something like that? Are you kidding me? It wouldn't last, you know. And so somewhere along the way, as I started getting a hold of the love of God, one day I realized I'm not an angry person anymore. You know what? I can't say on July the 10th, whatever, anger left me. I don't know when it did. Because see, here's what grace does. Grace is effortless change. Now, changing your beliefs are, is not effortless. In other words, you, you have to, you know, see God and look at God and meditate, you know, get you, get your heart wrapped around who God is and who you are, but... At some point, as I got convinced of God's love, I stopped being angry. That's good, yeah, good. I don't know the day it happened. But I just realized one day, you know what, I'm not an angry person anymore. I'm not that person who would knock holes and think, I had a 66 Mustang. Uh, it was my sister. She couldn't drive it because she, she couldn't drive a, a straight shift, you know. And so I, I bought it from her. And, man, it was a cream puff car, man. I mean, it was, it was a cream puff. But before long, it wasn't a cream puff when I got it. You know, I cut the exhaust off of it and made it loud and, you know, did all kind of stuff to it, you know. And so I was, you know, and when I, where I grew up, you, you know, you, we lived out, way out in the country, you know. And, and so you start driving about 12 years old. And so I was about 14, 15, I had this car. And I was coming home from school one day, one night, and I had a flat tire. See, I, I mean, I grew up angry. And I got out, it was left rear tire. And I stood there and the first thing I knew, now they made cars a little different back then. The, you know, the, 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 the fenders and things were real thick back then. You can total one with your fist now. And I started kicking inside of that car. And even back then, this has been in the early 70s, I, I did about $400 worth of damage to that car kicking it. Now, wasn't that stupid? that's dumb I mean you can't get that done by yourself and so I can just go through and tell you time and time again where I get angry one time my wife and I were dating and I was dating in high school and I got angry and we had one of those phones that I'd hang on the wall you know and, and so I got angry and I hung the phone up just a little bit too hard and it pulled the phone in a big hole in the wall out about like that so, my mom and dad were out of town. I was about 15, 16 years old, and they came back in, and there's a big hole in the wall where the telephone used to be. They said, How'd that happen? I said, Well, I just hung the phone up, and kind of like Aaron did, you know, when Moses came down off the mountain. He said, I just threw this gold into the fire and out jumped a calf, <laughs> you know. So, I could just go through my life. I got, when I was 16, I got in a fight with a guy who's 21, 16, if you're here today, and you're, you're, you're like a young person, you're 16, you ain't got any business fighting fighting a man. I stayed in the hospital for a week when well, this 21-year-old guy beat me to a pulp because I let my anger get out of control. I, then after that, I learned real quick, if you're going to get angry, get angry at 16-year-olds. Don't get angry at 21-year-olds. <laughs> they don't fight fair. I mean, it, he, he t- I mean, it tore my nose loose and they had to put it back on the side and and so I was in the hospital for a week, and, and so I just went through my life angry. But when I got a hold of the love of God, and I started seeing myself the way that God sees me, one day I realized I'm not angry anymore. So, the greatest thing you can do for you and the people around you is to see yourself the way that God sees you. And He sees you like that baby. And when Lord spoke that to me, and He said, "I never stopped looking at you the way that you look at Abby," it changed my life. It changed my life. I mean, because I look at Abby, and there was nothing else I'd change about her. You know what? So, we're right, you know what God was saying? There's nothing about you I'd change. I love you. Said it yesterday. God knew what He was getting when He got us, and He's not disappointed now. Amen. Let's bow our heads together, would you please? Holy Spirit, I thank you that you take what we've heard today and you make it real to all of our hearts. And Lord, I know that there's people here, I could say this anywhere, any shape, any time. And God, I know there's people here today that are struggling to see themselves the way that you see them. But Lord, I thank you that as they open their heart to your great love and the price that you paid for them, Lord, that there'll be a change begin to take place. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to change ourselves. But, Lord, your grace empowers us to let go of the destructive things in our life. And, Lord, we want to know when they left. So, Lord, I believe that in the years and the weeks and the months ahead, there will be people who look around and say, You know what, that thing that was bothering me, I'm just not doing it anymore. I don't know where it went. That's grace. Father. Father, we thank you today that we open our heart to your great love. Lord, and I speak peace over every person's life. I speak peace over that person who feels condemned about their life right now. I say, peace be still. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you that it never changes. In Jesus' name, amen.